So the title that I've chosen for the sermon this morning is A Confluence of Visions. Now, some of you might look at that and say, mm, I'm a little uncertain about what the word confluence means. A confluence is the location where two rivers flow into each other, forming one new river out of the two. The most famous confluence here in Brazil is the Rio Negro and the Solimões River. And it's famous because the Rio Negro, by its very title, is a very dark colored water. And so when it joins the, the Solimões River, when they run into each other, you can still see that division of color for kilometers downstream. But once the two rivers join, they, they together become a mighty behemoth, and in our contemporary context, specifically of hydropower. And after many kilometers of flowing together, their colors mix and they can no longer be told apart. It is just one river. Now I would like us to imagine the ancient world of Acts as two rivers, the Jewish river and the Gentile river. So far, the church has only been flowing in the Jewish river. But parallel to that river is the Gentile river that is much broader and much deeper, simply because there are more people in that river. These two rivers have been drawing closer to a confluence throughout the book of Acts, even though the people in those rivers are not aware of it. And in spite of their equal resistance, we're about to see the confluence of these rivers and the church will then, joined together, expand with lightning speeds to the ends of the earth. Now the account that we're going to be looking at for the next two weeks, today and then next week, is the longest narrative sequence in Acts. Clearly, Luke sees it as fundamentally important to the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. That's why he gives it so much attention and time. It's divided into four scenes, or at least I'm dividing it into four scenes. Setting the stage is the first scene. The second scene is the meeting. The third scene is the teaching. And the fourth scene is the joining. Now, today we're only going to look at the first two of those scenes, and next week we'll examine the third and the fourth scene. So I'll be reading this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, as we begin to see the first steps toward the confluence of these rivers. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them. And some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. We begin with the first scene setting the stage. And the stage is set by two visions. And the reason I've called this sermon a confluence of visions is because the joining of the Jewish and Gentile rivers in the church 
This joining is set in motion by two visions given to two drastically different men in two very different locations. And I want us to note that God is working to bring about their meeting and their ultimate union. God himself is the mover. He's acting on both sides in perfect timing, giving visions to each man, which will move them inevitably toward each other. The first vision is given to a man named Cornelius in the city of Caesarea. It's important for us to understand a little bit about Caesarea because it was the Roman capital and seat of Roman authority in Palestine. So the Jewish capital was Jerusalem. That was not the Roman capital. Rome had built Caesarea. It's located on the Mediterranean coast and even today is a beautiful location. It was a fully Roman city. It's the city in modern-day Israel with the greatest number of Roman ruins today. The Jews hated Caesarea. They hated it as a symbol of Roman occupation. They hated it as a place of foreign architecture. And they hated it as the seat of Roman political and military power in the region. There were more Gentiles living in Caesarea than there were Jews. The Jews were vastly outnumbered in the city. This is the city in which Cornelius receives his vision. Now, Cornelius himself, the text tells us, is a Roman military officer. He's a centurion, meaning that he commands a unit of 100 men. He's an occupier of Jewish territory. But the text also tells us that he was a good man. He was a God-fearer. A God-fearer, in this context, was a person who sympathized with Jewish religion and was attracted to it. They may even have believed that Yahweh was the only true God. This does seem to be the case with Cornelius. But at the same time, they had not gone so far as to fully convert to Judaism through circumcision. We're also told that Cornelius was devoted to God and also devoted to acts of service, giving generously to the poor. Again, we see in Cornelius this image of the two sides, the balanced sides of the gospel, the proclamation and the acts of service. In the vision itself, an angel appears to Cornelius and gives him a specific message. Go and summon a man named Peter from Joppa. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. Bring him back to Caesarea. And Cornelius responds with immediate obedience. So he doesn't have any doubt that this is a divine message. He doesn't question whether the information he has received is accurate. He calls one of his most trusted soldiers and sends him with two of his servants to, uh, to Joppa, completely convinced that they will encounter this man Peter staying at the home of Simon the Tanner. Now we have a pause in the story. It's actually not really a pause in the overall story. It's a change of setting because the first vision is done and then Luke goes back to the other setting. And the, the timing of this, the timing of the visions is interesting, isn't it? Because Cornelius's men were already on the way. And so it's a day later approximately that Peter has his vision. God is working the timing perfectly. He is a master uh, of logistics. So as we move to the other river, the Jewish one, 
Here God is also working to set in motion the joining of Jew and Gentile within the church. Now this man, Peter, we already know him. He's a very different man from Cornelius. He's Peter, the foremost apostle, a Jew from birth. He's the primary leader of the church. And he's in the city of Joppa. Now I have a question. What well-known Bible story kind of has as one of its most important settings the city of Joppa. Does any, Jonah. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. Jonah. As it relates to Jonah, what happens in Joppa? Joppa is the city to which Jonah went to run away from God's command. What was God's command? To go to the Ninevites, in other words, to go to the Gentiles and preach to them repentance and warn them of the coming destruction if they did not turn to God. And remember Jonah's response. I'm not going. And why did he not go? Because he said he knew that God was merciful and compassionate. And he did not want God to have mercy on the Gentiles, the Assyrians, whose capital was Nineveh. And for that reason, he thought that if he ran away, God wouldn't have any other way of communicating to the, the Gentiles. So do we understand why Joppa, in this case, symbolically is an important city in which for Peter to receive this vision? Because it carries the weight of rebellion, it also carries the symbol of the rejection of Gentiles by the Jews because of Jonah's actions. So two different men in two different cities, which each invoke historical division, each representing the animosity between Jew and Gentile. It's here that Peter receives his vision He's praying on the roof of Simon's house and he has a very human experience. He gets hungry. I can relate. I think you probably can too. Now there's a difference between Peter's experience of hunger and ours. There were no ancient Near Eastern refrigerators and there were no ancient Near Eastern pantries where, you know, I'm a little hungry, I'm just going to go down and open the cupboard and see what there is and munch on something it's, it's kind of funny in the context, we might miss this if we just read through it quickly, but it says Peter was hungry, so he has to wait for the meal to be prepared. And that's, that's a long wait in the ancient Near East. You know, that's not a, you know, I'm going to stick something in the microwave and, and two minutes later it'll be ready for me to eat. Peter's on the roof. It's hot. He's trying to pray. And at the same time, he's hungry. And God uses his hunger, something that we can all relate to, something that's human, as an entry point for his vision. It says that Peter falls into a trance. That can happen to us uh, perhaps unintentionally when we're trying to pray. We fall into a uh, trance that we sometimes call sleep. Um, in this case, Simon falls, Simon who's Peter, falls into a trance and in this trance, God gives him a vision. And we've read what it is. A sheet comes down from heaven filled with all kinds of different animals. And a voice from heaven, God's voice, 
tells Peter, Peter, get up, kill one of these animals, and eat. Now, Peter is horrified at this suggestion because many of these animals were unclean according to Jewish law. And Jews were never allowed to eat meat from those kinds of animals, ever. There was never a situation in which that was permitted. There was nothing that could be done to those animals to make their meat pure and um, edible for a Jew. So Peter responds with, surely not, Lord. Now, we need to hear that response in our vernacular today. When we read biblical language and we hear, surely not, Lord, what we imagine is Peter saying, surely not, Lord. That's not what Peter said. Peter said, no way. No way I'm eating that. I've never broken any of the Jewish food laws my whole life. I'm sickened at the thought. It repulses me. I'm revolted at the thought of eating that. Think of the worst thing you can imagine that you would be asked to eat. That's his revulsion. And God responds to to Peter's resistance and he says, Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Jewish food laws were one of the primary ways that Jews were to be different from the nations that surrounded them. And that was God's command. It was part of their national identity. It was God's intention. But now God is making a profound statement to Peter about Peter's new identity. He's no longer primarily a Jew and identified first by Jewish law. He's now primarily a follower of Jesus. And while in the past his Jewishness kept him apart from Gentiles, now... Christ will become the primary identity of both Jew and Gentile. Not their their ethnicity, not their race, not their culture. So this process of the sheet being lowered to Peter is repeated three times. And then after it's taken up to heaven the third time, Peter snaps out of his trance, but he's disturbed by what he saw and heard. There are two verbs that the text uses to describe Peter's processing of what he saw. It says he wondered about it, and then he was thinking about it later. And both of these terms in the Greek refer to tough, intense, concentrated thought. And then the Spirit speaks clearly and gives Peter his assignment, even as Cornelius received instructions as well. Peter, three men are looking for you. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So again, God working on both sides. And just as the Spirit says that, I can imagine those three men arriving at the gate, and they call out. Why do they call out? Well, yes, of course, to draw attention. But we have to remember also they were Gentiles, and they were approaching a Jewish home where they would not have been welcome to enter. So they stand at the gate and they call out, Ojikaza, anyone there? This is where Peter is? Because they know that they are not going to be welcomed into that space. Why? Because they're Gentiles. The home is a Jewish home. 
And in verse 23, we see the first step of Peter's part toward this confluence. I think he's starting to understand. He hasn't quite grasped it yet, I don't think, but he's starting to understand, to catch a glimpse of the meaning of the vision that he was given. And how do we see that? Because he goes to the gate and he says, yeah, I'm the guy you're looking for. And he does something absolutely unexpected. He invites them in. Now that's a big step. But it's not unheard of in Jewish history. What would be unheard of is for a Jew to enter a Gentile's home. So just hang on, that's coming as we all know. Here's that first little step. Peter opens the gate and he invites them into the Jewish home in which he is being hosted. They spend the night there and he agrees to travel with them to Caesarea. So now the stage has been set for the confluence of the Jewish and Gentile rivers. The next step is they actually meet. That moves us to our second scene, the meeting. Through the powerful planning, preparation, and movement of God, the two rivers send out the first tentative streams that meet in Caesarea. On the one side, a Gentile, a military officer, part of the occupying force, a representative of the earthly military power of Rome. On the other side, a Jewish fisherman, an apostle, and a representative of the the invisible but real kingdom of God. Several things to note here. Um, It's it's important that we see Cornelius' faith, his confidence that what God had said would happen would happen. How do we see this? There was a large gathering of people in his home. It was an agglomeration of people. Why were they there? Because they were expecting Simon's arrival. Interesting, by Simon I mean Peter, Simon Peter. And it's interesting because Cornelius doesn't even know what Peter's going to say. He doesn't know why Peter's coming. But he knows that it was ordained by God and so he invites his loved ones, his family, we suppose, if his family was there, others that he thought might be interested. There's a large number of people crowding into Cornelius' house just waiting for this guy named Peter that they don't know who's coming to them from Joppa, who's a Jew, but has a message from God for them. Peter walks in and Cornelius falls at his feet. And we see another step on the part of Peter that he's beginning to understand what God's doing because he says to Cornelius, you know, stop, stop. Don't, don't fall down in front of me. Stand up. I am only a man myself. That he would identify himself with Cornelius. We're the same. We're the same. Peter doesn't say, yeah, you know, I kind of, I, I do deserve some credit, some thanks, some gratitude for making this long journey, for lowering myself to come in, into a Gentile home. He doesn't do that. He's beginning to understand. And then in verse 28, Peter makes the statement, which is the theme and the fulcrum of this whole passage. The key turning point that's going to bring these two rivers to join. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. 
What does he mean with those two words, impure and unclean? It's stated, as we saw earlier, in the context of animals that were considered unclean for Jews, excuse me, to eat. Just as there was nothing that could be done to make impure foods clean for the Jews to eat, so to call a person impure or unclean, to use the same vocabulary that was applied to the food, was to say that they were fundamentally unredeemable. That they were not allowed or not able to come to Jesus by their very nature. And while the early church believed that people had to first come to Judaism in order to come to Jesus, God is now re-emphasizing, revealing to Peter that Judaism is in the past. That's no longer Peter's identity. It's no longer the identity of the church. And no one is excluded from coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. All are invited And those who respond are given Christ himself as their new identity. And that becomes what unifies them together in the church. So impure and unclean means, when Peter says, I'm not to call anyone that, he's saying no one is being excluded from the offer of salvation. No one is told you may not come to Jesus. No one is kept from the redeeming grace of Christ and from the benefit of his death on the cross because of any human attribute, because of race, because of culture, because of theology, because of appearance, because of socioeconomic background. And we'll talk about a little bit more of this when we get to the conclusion today. It's interesting too that we're seeing fulfillment of prophecy, fulfillment of something that Jesus said to Peter himself and about Peter in Matthew 16, 19, I don't know how many of you remember that account, but Jesus says to Peter, it's a complicated sort of strange statement, but he says to Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Theologians have struggled for years to understand exactly what that meant. Um, the Roman Catholic Church interpreted that to mean that Peter was the first pope What did God mean by it? Well, if we look at the evidence as it plays out in the book of Acts, we can see that God worked through Peter uniquely to open a way for different people or different peoples to enter the kingdom of God. So in that sense, Peter had the key. Peter was not the key himself. The key is God's. God worked through Peter. He chose him, and it's God's power working through him. But think about this. Through Peter, God opened the way for Jews to come to the kingdom. Remember the day of Pentecost that begins the book of Acts? When he preaches to all the Jews that were in Jerusalem for the festival, and over 3,000 believe, that's a, a, a seminal moment of Jews coming to Christ. And just last week, Peter with the Samaritans. Remember, Philip had been preaching all through Samaria, but when Peter arrives, they receive the Holy Spirit. You see this again. He's opening to the Samaritans, the the sort of semi-Jews. And now here we see God using Peter as the key to open the doors to the kingdom to the Gentiles. 
I want to bring this to a close by, a, by applying it to us in our context where we are today. I know that all of us would accept the statement that everyone is invited to come to Jesus. I want to be clear about something here. I'm saying everyone is invited to come to Jesus. I'm not saying that Jesus has saved everyone. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that salvation is offered to any that will come. I don't think that anyone of us, at least consciously, would exclude someone from coming to Jesus based on their ethnicity or their race. But what about our hesitation or even our refusal to share the gospel with people because we prejudge them? And one way we often prejudge others is thinking or imagining, oh, they, wouldn't, they won't be interested. They don't want to hear me talk about Jesus. They're resistant to the gospel. They're hard. They have another religion. Whatever it may be, we come up with these reasons. Or they're just rude. They're just mean. I'm scared of them. They, they don't want to hear what I have to say about Jesus. They'll never come to him. Do, do, we, do we know the heart? Do we know the soul? Do we know what people truly do or do not want at the core of their being? Is it possible that in this we could be like these, some of the ancient Jews, excluding people from the kingdom because we have prejudged them for any variety of reasons? When I was in high school, um, participated in a, I guess you'd call it a quiz competition. It was called Knowledge Bowl. We had a team of four um, and we competed against a number of other schools. And there was another school against whom we repeated, uh, we competed rather regularly. So we got to know the four team members of that school very well. Became close friends, good friends. And one day uh, we heard that um, one of the members of that team, he was, I think, 15 years old, he was young, freshman in high school. He had uh, died. Randomly, unexpectedly, a really bizarre, like a, a gas leak in the shower where he was showering and the gas, he, anyway, he died. And uh, I think I was 18, 17 at the time. And as soon as I heard that, I just, I began to remember, it was like this, this flashing through my mind of all the contact I had had with this guy and had never, ever said anything about Jesus. And as I thought about it, it wasn't that I was resistant to sharing, but subconsciously, unconsciously, I had made a prejudgment about him and his three teammates. They don't want to know. They don't want, they, they, they don't care. They're, you know, living life free and easy. They're young, they're in high school. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear about faith. They don't want to hear about the gospel. this has been something that, that has um, weighed on me, you know, it, it, my whole life since then. I remember immediately following, in fact, that day that I, um, that day that, that I heard about this boy's death and I, I said to the Lord, I prayed and I said, if you give me an opportunity, I will share the gospel with any of that boy's teammates, you know, the other three. 
Uh, God did open that door uh, to the one Jewish member of that team. <laughs> um, and we got together. Um, we were both graduating from high school and going our separate ways. And I just said to him, I said, listen, I, I'm, I know that we come from very different perspectives. Historically, we come from very different perspectives religiously. But when, when your teammate died, I told God, that if he gave me an opportunity to talk to any member of your team about what I believe in my faith, I would do it. So here goes. I know you're Jewish. I know there's a whole history here, but I'm going to share. So I got to talk about Jesus. Of course, I would love to say that he fell down in repentance and, and accepted the Lord right there, but he didn't. But I always remember him looking at me and saying, thank you so much for caring enough about me to tell me this, even though I don't believe it. And, and I, I remember even then being convicted by the fact that that pre-judgment, again, this person will not want to listen. They will not want to hear. They don't care about it. Who am I to say that? And am I not being, perhaps as Peter was, resistant? Am I not keeping people out of the kingdom by pre-judging them? So, brothers and sisters, we are Christ's witnesses. If you've been through this whole series on Acts and you haven't gotten that yet, then, then, we, then we're in trouble. Either I'm not doing a good job or, or you're sleeping or both. Um, because we, we, we have to remember we are Christ's witnesses. And we are not the ones who decide who is worthy of hearing the gospel and who isn't. So when God gives us opportunities to share, let's take them no matter who that person may be. If that opportunity comes, let's be committed to the Lord saying, Lord, I will take advantage of that opportunity and I will speak, I will share. Now there's a second application here that we also need to address and that is prejudice within the church, within the body of Christ. And I'm not speaking primarily about racial prejudice, although that may still be an issue for some and if it is, that's something of which we need to repent. But that's a kind of prejudice that is very much on the forefront of our minds these days because of the world situation. So I want to talk about some that maybe are, are a little more subtle. What about cultural prejudice? We may not exclude cultures from coming to Jesus, but may we not, might we not look down on certain cultures in our hearts and in our minds? And what about economic status? Are we prejudiced against people who come from a different socioeconomic background than we do? And that goes both ways. It can be those who perceive themselves as being at a lower socioeconomic background, looking down on those who come from a, a higher one, as the world puts it, or vice versa, those who are higher looking down on those who are lower. What about certain points of theology? And here I'm, I'm not speaking of theological or doctrinal points that are not essential to sal that I'm sorry that are essential to salvation those on those we must have agreement the divinity of Jesus the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place that salvation is by from by grace alone through faith alone that Jesus is God he is equal with the father with the holy spirit so I'm not talking about those essential points of doctrine, but are we guilty of looking down on others within the body of Christ who have 
differing theological convictions that we do that do not relate specifically to sin and salvation. And, and I want to emphasize that here I'm not speaking of sin. God is not saying here that he accepts sin. God is not saying here that all sinners are just accepted into the kingdom without repentance, without purification, without forgiveness. Absolutely not. I'm speaking of people who have already come to Jesus in repentance and faith, and they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. So whenever we encounter prejudice in ourselves toward others in the body of Christ, it's because we have taken on a primary identity that is other than Jesus. So we have put a definer before Christ in our identity. In other words, instead of saying, I'm a Christian we say, I am a white Christian, or I am a poor Christian, or I am a rich Christian, or I am a Calvinist Christian, or I am an Arminian Christian, or I am a North American Christian, or I am a Brazilian Christian. We take some modifier as our primary identity that comes before Christ. So in the case of Peter, he might have said, I am a Jewish Christian. And what, God, what Jesus did on the cross, one of, one, of, one of the things he accomplished there is to remove all modifiers from before the word Christian. That for his people, for his church, we are Christians first. Meaning we are united in him. He is our primary identity and all other identities, all other differences are secondary. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm saying they are secondary. And never should a modifier come before the word Christian. Because Christ is our primary identifier. Jesus is our Lord, Savior, brother, and King. Our race, our ethnicity, our theological convictions on non-essentials, our socioeconomic status, our jobs, the languages that we speak, our cultural background. And if we find, if we see any of that prejudice in ourselves, this is a call to repent. Um, it's easy to see the prejudice in others, right? I've talked about this many times before. It's easy to hear something like this and think, ooh, that person over there, they need to repent, and ooh, they need to repent because I've seen the... Right now... We're not looking in the specks in our brothers' and sisters' eyes. We're looking at the logs in our own eyes. Of what do we need to repent? How have we been standing in the way of that confluence of the variety of different rivers that become the church? Because now in Acts, we're, we're, these two rivers, they're, they're poised to join in a confluence that will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Today in the church, as we repent of and shed our false identities and are united in Christ, the church will grow in power, depth, and light. And we will shine as a brighter and brighter light to the nations.